0: Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in to episode three of Raw Talk Podcast, the podcast formerly known as Raw Data. This is another pilot episode that was originally recorded back in March of 2016, before any of us really knew where this project was going. And on this episode, Jabir and I spoke with Dr. Norm Rosenblum, who is a pediatric nephrologist and then the associate dean of the MD-PhD program at the University of Toronto. Dr. Rosenblum talks about his personal experiences as a medical trainee and resident, realizing along the way the importance of research and the role of the physician scientist, a rare breed that can translate findings from the lab to shape clinical insights and delivery of care. Dr. Rosenblum is a super down-to-earth and personable individual who was a lot of fun to talk to, and he was one of the earliest PIs to endorse us and agree to join the show. On this episode, we also hear from Kat and Aaron, who do our very first Flashback Friday segment and talk about the discovery of knockout mice. And then, as part of our Ask a Student segment, we talk to Swapna, an MD-PhD student who actually later became a member of the Raw Talk team and went on to create her own podcast called Medicine in Motion with her twin sister, Sandhya. Check out their Instagram at steam.sisters. Thanks, Swapna. And now, here it is in its original form, episode three.
1: Hello, listeners. This is episode three of the Raw Data Podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. Our theme this month is the physician scientist. Now, IMS is all about promoting translational research. And with one foot in the clinic and the other in the lab, physician scientists are uniquely positioned to bridge the gap between bench and bedside. And what better representation for this role than Dr. Norm Rosenblum, a fellow physician scientist and associate dean of the MD-PhD program at the University of Toronto. In our conversation, Dr. Rosenblum reflects on his journey in becoming a physician scientist and tells us why bilingual expertise in clinical medicine and research is so important. All right, let's get to it.
2: Welcome, Dr. Rosenblum. Thank you. Great to be here.
1: So we usually begin a podcast by digging into the past. So could you begin by talking about a little about your personal background, where you grew up in your early education.
2: Sure. Well, I grew up in Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, which is a mining town of about 25,000 people. Um, as long as I can remember, and we have documentary evidence of this in my family, from the age of four years, I was somehow fascinated with medicine. You know, it's, you can concoct a lot of stories as to why that's true, but in actual fact I don't know. I just know that my imagination flared when it came to medical stuff and I was just, I thought it was very interesting and I was always reading medical books and it just never went away. Now I had a little, uh, I had a few people in my family who were physicians but there were of course lawyers and there other people but somehow it was uh, one of my uncles a cardiologist, uh, he really sort of nurtured this interest in me um, so this stayed with me, and and growing up in a in a small town, a relatively small town, uh, this interest was definitely nurtured by people around me. Um, I, when I was in high school, I volunteered at the um, at the general hospital in the town. Um, on Saturdays, I for two years, uh, the pathologist in the town somehow noticed me, invited me to autopsies. Um, I was allowed to leave school whenever I wished to go to the hospital to see autopsies. There would be an announcement (laughs) on the loudspeaker when I was in grade 11 and 12 it would say something like Norman Rosenblum come to the principal's office which was a signal that I should just leave and go to the hospital.
1: That was your pager.
2: That was my pager. (laughs) So you know small-town life is different than big-city life and you know I was a good student so nobody was really worried about me and um, they were happy to nurture allow these things to happen so I was totally into it as a kid um, I guess the other important thing is that I was a bit of a skeptic um, and this is something my parents definitely nurtured and, and modeled for me um, I would you know when it came to what the truth is my parents were the kind of people who definitely in their own ways with their own personalities question what the truth really was. Big and T. Yeah. Yeah. What the big T truth was and would ask I could hear the conversations and I, you know, and my brother, I think we grew up really being questioning people and we knew that was that was good. Or at least it was valued in the in our family. And and so, you know, being a bit of a skeptic and looking at the world, that's, you know, a lot what medicine is like and You know, this appears to be true, but is it? And science is certainly about that, right? What is the real truth? And so I think my personality, in a sense, was, you know, uh, matched this interest. And uh, so I went to university at Dalhousie University, um, uh, not that far from where I grew up in Halifax. And uh, you know, I was on this pre-medical track, but I did a three-year degree, and I think one of the most important things that happened to me was, was I took a developmental biology course in my third year, a really good developmental biology course. And um, the professor was just this kind of guy who loved a very inquiring, open atmosphere. And that was like, it just really fired me up. And um, it was uh, sort of liberating, and so we, we had a great time together, and I think there was a lot of intellectual development that occurred, and that dovetailed with a couple of summers of research here in Toronto, actually, as a summer student. I began to realize, you know, the expanse of what the world was really about and how people could be thinking about things, and then uh, then I got into medicine at Dalhousie. And uh, you know, I was one of those. You know, there were ninety-six of us, and I was among the ten who questioned everything that was presented. <laughs> to the, um, I would say, to the discontent of some of my classmates. You know, it's like, you know, let's just yeah, sort of like that. And what does this really mean? Are you sure? And and doesn't couldn't this mean this? And you know because medicine you know is very much hosed down the throat sort of learning it's a mass of information that right. has to be consumed and um, you know almost intellectual survival requires that you find some way to some element of, you know to digest that in a way that's beyond just learning it you know and um, so I, perhaps it was a survival mechanism for me to enjoy how to enjoy medical school when particularly in the first couple of years where it's just a massive assault of information. Didacticism. It is, and uh, we certainly lived in a didactic world when I was in medical school. I guess the next really important thing that happened was I was in second year medicine studying nephrology because that's one of the courses. You take kidney disease, and the, and the person who taught it was an, uh, a faculty member named Alan Cohen, and Alan, who became a really close friend, um, uh, noticed that I just really in- was interested. And I thought, the kidney, wow, this is really amazing. Now, th- this struck me as unusual because I actually went into medical school thinking I would be a cardiac surgeon. But I realized quickly, because I took an elective early on in first year, that I didn't have that three-dimensional sense. I appreciate it in myself. Yes. There was something not quite there that surgeons seemed to use and i thought hmm this is a problem the other thing was that in the operating room the surgeon would ask me questions and when i gave my answers finally the surgeon said to me you know you shouldn't be a surgeon and i said why is that and he said because your answers are too long he says you think too much now of this course surgeon this, was, this was in first year medical school the surgeons of course think lots they're very thoughtful people But I had this sort of internist-like way of weaving through arguments and going through logic structures that is not really, there's not much time for that (laughs) in the operating room. So he recognized in me, I think, a lot of his colleagues who were internists and who enjoyed the intellectual life. And he said, you're more like that than like this. I also realized I was more like that. So anyway, I got turned on to nephrology. This this, uh, faculty member said to me, because he could see I was entertained but also a little bored by the classroom said you know how about if I arrange for you to see a a patient every week with kidney disease and you'll go see that person and then I'll spend an hour with you after every Wednesday afternoon. Now you know when you think about mentorship and about faculty taking an interest in students to me that is signature gold label. For some reason that I still cannot really fathom, this guy took an interest in me, saw something, and you know, he was extremely important to my career development. Yeah, you know, he, he sort of took me from a, a bit of an island of, you know, just trying to deal with all this into uh, an oasis of, "Oh my God, this is amazing." Yeah, because I saw patience with him, we talked about all kinds of physiology and pathobiology, and it was amazing. So Um,
3: this was as early as your first year. This is my second year of
2: medicine, and we did that for a full year, and then continued into third year, (coughs) which was a sort of half clerkship at Dalhousie, and the fourth year was a full clerkship. He was one of the people that propelled me to my residency at the Children's Hospital in Boston, which was, you know, really to this day, I would say, the premier training ground for academic pediatricians in the world.
1: So what got you interested in pediatric nephrology and not adult?
2: Well, first I thought I would do adult medicine actually. So the typical route to nephrology is either you become an adult, you become an internist, or you become a pediatrician, and then you choose. Because there's training in nephrology in both lanes, okay? You know, for kids or for adults, because it's not the same. Um, so I thought I would be an adult physician. But it turned out, it. W- I really didn't like it that much. I, um, I didn't enjoy working with the agent. Uh, it, it, I didn't enjoy that much working in an in internal medicine context. I found I was very impressed by the intellectual atmosphere, but there were other things that were less appealing to me. What I loved about pediatrics was I loved working with kids. I worked with kids since I was a kid myself. And uh, I like kids and I like families. And I like joking around to be honest with you. I have a whole humor side of my life. And I felt like with kids I can be totally myself. Because kids demand that of people. Right? They cozy up, they work with you easiest when you're most at ease with yourself. So I'd walk in the room, with kid around, so to speak. We, you know, a few jokes, a little entertainment, trying to get in their head, and then you start to get, family gets comfortable, you learn a lot, work with the family. I liked all this. I thought it was very humane, you know, And, and I was counseled by other people. They said, you know, this is the most important recognition you can have because you'll If you like this, then you'll learn to, you'll be as entertained by topics in pediatrics, which I clearly was. And here's where the loop back to developmental biology comes, because pediatrics is essentially developmental biology. And all of a sudden, everything became very coherent. But it didn't happen immediately, because I actually did a year of medicine before I went into pediatrics. um, And then I left, and I went to pediatrics. Oh, really? By
1: doing a yeah. year in medicine.
2: Yeah, I did a year of internal medicine. I, I actually matched after medical school to internal medicine. Mm-hmm. And just before I started internal medicine, I went to the head of medicine and the head of pediatrics and said, I made a mistake. This was in Boston as well? No, this was in Dalhousie. Oh, OK. Yeah, it turned out my wife was doing her master's at the time. We weren't mobile. So I had to spend another year at Dalhousie. I thought I'd do my internal medicine there, and then we'd leave and go somewhere. How did research get incorporated into your story? Yeah, so along the way, I just, uh, you know, I was certainly not so developed, so mature that, uh, you know, I was like an MD-PhD student. I totally got it. There was one MD-PhD graduate in our class. Uh, There was no MD-PhD program that I was aware of at Dalhousie at the time. Um, So I was not at all where I'm at now in terms of, but I was, here's where this, you know, sort of, curious guy, a bit skeptical. I just kept doing little projects um, every summer or during the year that were about things that interested me. And and they were good because uh, I learned things about how to do research. I also worked with faculty that were very talented and stimulated my thinking. And I think I, and then I went to Boston and you know, but and the ethos in that program was developing the next generation of academicians, many of whom were going to become research scientists, physician scientists. And I think as much as I really loved clinical medicine, which I, I really enjoy, I was so uh, impressed by how much we didn't know that I decided that I needed to really uh, at some point, go after research training in a very serious way to figure out whether it was going to be something I wanted to do. And the only way to really find it out was, you know, not from these projects, which was fine. But it was to really, you know, just like going to medicine and residency, you know, you, finally you got to step in the deep water. And um, and so that's what I did as a postdoc. After I finished my nephrology training.
1: You did your postdoc where? at?
2: And in the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at the Harvard Medical School with uh, someone named Bjorn Olson, who was a very well known uh, extracellular matrix biologist in those days. And, you know, I really was totally naive about science, really totally naive. But uh, hi- this was an excellent lab, a uh, big lab he was a really interesting man and um, I went in and I worked with him and with uh, someone named Morris Karnofsky who was the first person I'm aware of who ever cultured a kidney cell Uh, and together with Morris and Bjorn I learned how to culture glomerular cells of different types and study their extracellular matrix components and clone and you know I remember when we got our first PCR machine three weeks after that paper came out in, I think it was Nature or Science, I can't remember which. Um, all of that was new. We used to spend, you, know, you could spend over a year cloning and in three weeks it was all done. I mean that was how the world was changing and um, anyway so that's what I did. For four and a half years I was in that lab. I was like a graduate student. I took courses in cell biology and molecular biology. I, Learned how to do experiments. And the more I did it, the more I liked it.
1: You weren't practicing at that
2: time. Yeah, I was. Uh, because, you know, by that point, when I started that, I had already done my residency. I'd already been a fellow. I was a chief resident at Boston. I, I mean, was a very well trained clinician. I was pretty much at the top of my game as a young guy. Um, and so I kept a clinic every second week um, in nephrology. And that was good. I had a hand in it. And my mind kept thinking and going over things, but the major focus of what I was doing was research. That was typical, by the way, in that atmosphere. There were tons of us doing this. This was the way it was in the Boston programs. Yeah, you walk down Longwood Avenue, and this is the phenotype. You know, young hot dogs trying to go after the future. I mean, really. Yeah, it was a very exhilarating atmosphere. So before the show, we were talking a little bit about
3: how technology has really come a long way, particularly in your field. Looking back, how would you say that that's sort of changed the research questions and the challenges that you face in research today,
2: as opposed to, say, maybe two decades ago? Yeah. Well, let's go back three decades even. So you know, I was doing extracellular matrix biology. I actually changed out of that. I decided when I got recruited to Toronto to leave that field, in a sense, and to go into the field of kidney development. And the reason I did it was for one specific reason. I went to a conference in Philadelphia uh, soon before I you know, uh, before I came here in 1993 and I heard Oliver Smithies give an after-dinner talk and Oliver Smithies got the Nobel Prize for ESL recombination. He wasn't the only one, but he did. And I listened to it. I said, oh my god, you know, Embryology used to be about people taking tiny pieces of tissue, recombining them, and understanding the way they interacted and so on. This was, this was maybe people would still do this, but the world was going to be completely different because now we could, people could mutate genes, make animals with abnormal tissues, study the genesis of these tissues in vivo. I said, clearly, this is a game changer. Even I can recognize this which means it's so obviously a game-changer that even I can recognize it. <laughs> so I just came away from that and I said this is the moment to do this. And, um, and so I decided to harness, try to harness what I had heard as I set up my own program. And uh, so that was, you know, there's a piece of technology and with that came what we call Cree mediated excision of genes so recombinase mediated excision in a tissue specific manner and you know i have basically for the last uh, you know 15 20 years lived off this kind of technology because we my lab has become quite proficient in dissecting the different cellular interactions and signaling interactions through the use of this kind of technology
4: everyone, this is Kat, and this is Erin, and this is Flashback Friday, where we take you through a major scientific discovery that has impacted the way we study gene abnormalities today.
5: In today's installment, we revisit the work of Oliver Smithies and his contemporaries on gene recombination and knockout mice.
4: As Dr. Rosenblum mentioned, Smithies, along with Mario Capecci and Sir Martin Evans, was jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine back in 2007 for their discoveries of principles for introducing specific gene modifications in mice by the use of embryonic stem cells.
5: Now, all that sounds really cool, but what exactly does that mean? Essentially, a target gene of interest is replaced with a gene that's very similar but altered just enough to render it inactive. This technique was first demonstrated using early-staged embryonic stem cells in mice in 1989 and dramatically changed how we're able to study the role of genetics in human disease today. And because of this work, Smithies, Capecci, and Evans are also referred to as the fathers of the knockout mouse, a very widely used tool for molecular biology and physiology. So you may be wondering,
4: what is a knockout mouse? Well, contrary to popular belief, it has nothing to do with boxing. We can study the function of a particular gene of interest by taking regular healthy mice, referred to as wild-type mice, and inactivating or knocking out that gene. Mice with altered genetic sequences are thus referred to as knockout mice.
5: By studying the behavioral and physiological differences between knockout and wild-type mice, we can infer the function of the original gene. And since humans and mice share many genes, this can then help us to understand how that
4: gene can contribute to human diseases. This type of gene-targeting technology can be applied to the study of a wide range of diseases, such as Dr. Rosenblum's research on genetic abnormalities in kidney development. Many researchers today work with knockout mice on a daily basis. And now you know the history behind the discovery and development of this widely used tool. And that concludes our
5: first Flashback Friday. Now back to the
4: podcast.
2: So there's an example of how technology really changed me, had a huge influence. I would say the next thing that's happened that's had a huge influence is genomic sequencing. Yes. The genome project. Because our problem was in kidney development, as an example, but I think it's true of organogenesis, is that so, you know, malformations are likely to be associated with genetic abnormalities. And the way these genetic abnormalities would be found was through what we call traditional reverse genetics. So you have families, multiple affected individuals, and you do reverse genetics and you find something. But in our field, in the population I deal with, we don't have these kinds of families. They're actually very unusual. So how do you find the genetic component to these diseases? Very tough. And next-generation sequencing has changed all that because now um, we have gone through a period where over 200 genes have been identified in mice that if you tanker with them you cause malformation. and Many people have worked out the mechanisms. But now the question is, what about humans? And so I'd say multiplex PCR and uh, next generation sequencing, whether it be exome or whole genome, is a game changer. And part of the work we're doing now is to try to understand the, the significance of missense variants, so single base paired substitutions that don't result in a truncated protein or a null to to understand their functional contribution because you have these rare variants, they are rare, you find them in individuals that are affected and then you ask, how does that, is it, is it functionally important or is it a finding, a signature? And that's a major issue and it's not only a major issue in terms of targeting disease, but it's also in terms of genetic counseling, in terms of what will it mean if somebody else gets it and what will happen. Well, it turns out this playing field is pretty complicated uh, if we took the time to sort through all the issues. But I find this really fascinating because when I go to the clinic and I meet these kids, these are the issues. is Why did this happen? Can we do something about it? And when this child grows up, and has children of his or her own. So what's going to be? That's what they asked me over and over and over again.
1: The malformations, where do they most likely occur in the kidney?
2: Um, it, can, it can really disrupt um, uh, you know, any of the major processes. So we're talking about now kidney and urinary tract. So dr- urinary tract, meaning the tubes that drain, right? So ureter, bladder. And it turns out that in utero, uh, malformation of the renal pelvis, which is the basin where the urine collects inside the kidney and then the ureter. These are the major, this is the most common abnormality detected by ultrasound during pregnancy in human beings. One in 150 pregnancies. So this is common. Now only 20% of these are probably functionally important, but it creates a huge problem because Women are being detected, fetuses are being detected all the time where there are issues like this. And so which ones are gonna go which way? What's the natural history of these problems? Who's gonna be most severely affected? What can be done about it? These are the big issues clinically. And and based on your findings and the findings of your colleagues, have the outcomes improved at all for patients? No, I I don't think we have any specific tools yet that have allowed us to change the natural history. Um, I would say there's one area where I would say that I have to put a big caveat to that statement. And that is just the recognition, but this has not been genetics per se, this is ultrasound screening. The recognition that a child has a malformation in utero has allowed us to intervene immediately upon birth, to realize that child does have a problem at birth, and that can be very important to the most severely affected individuals. Yeah, but genetics per se is yet, we're yet to see the fruits. Um, of what we're doing. But we know that's a long road. Look at cystic fibrosis. Gene cloned in the 80s, late 80s. First treatments, just in the last two years. Yeah, really just now. Uh, Going to become really something that can be used for patients. It's, it's, a you know, medicine and science are very complicated. And these, uh, and so harnessing this knowledge is a complicated business.
1: So signaling pathways are really emphasized in your research. Yes. Um, you talk about the Sonic Hedgehog pathway, but how do you target one over the other? How do you say, okay, I only want to look at these second messengers?
2: Yeah. So the the way that we've dealt with this is so we've studied you know really three major signaling pathways in my lab: the BMP signaling pathway, the Wnt pathway, and Hedgehog signaling pathway. These are the major pathways that we've been in. We've looked at, it It turns out there's only about six major pathways that function in development of organs, but we look at the phenotypes. So as an example, um, what I mean is, do we generate, when we uh, manipulate these pathways, do we generate a malformation that is something that resembles what happens in a human being? Okay, now it turns out now we're dealing with one, uh, which we call, which is ureteropelvic junction obstruction, which is due to altered, in, in our situation, uh, that we're studying in mice, due to altered hedgehog signaling. And our studies demonstrate that when you look at human tissue, there's also abnormality in some patients in hedgehog signaling. See, this is the kind of thing that I think is extremely important and relevant. So. We learn something about biology, but also sometimes you generate a model or something that looks like a model of human disease, and then you pursue that to understand it in humans to see whether it really is, and then you develop a targeting plan. And so right now we're in the midst of this particular story, and it's very exciting because we think it could be possible in a postnatal environment to, to actually therapeutically target this
3: problem. So, just switching gears a little bit, you've had the opportunity of working with and mentoring clinician scientists, uh, current and and budding. What is the future of of that field? Is the clinician scientist uh, an endangered species?
2: Well, you know, um, if you read the literature, you will certainly, that's where you'll get that term, because there's plenty of commentaries and editorials that have been written about the threatened clinician scientist physician scientists, let alone clinician scientists in fields other than medicine per se, so nursing and rehab, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're talking about a small fraction of all medical practitioners. Physician scientists are, at best, five percent of all the physicians that are graduated in North America. So it's a small group, and it always has been. But it's a enduring career, in my view, in any system that seeks to make major inroads in health research because of the particular advantage that a physician in this case and has if they are also a physician scientist. If you're interested in studying health research questions that are important, if you have lived it, understand it, know the nuances and have access to the patients and the the materials biological materials from patients, and you have a scientific mind and a project, you're in a great position to tackle some pretty important things. So I am very optimistic, notwithstanding the changing tides, ever-changing dynamic tides that are, relate to funding, world economics, how the system works, and so on. I believe that there will always be people who are so motivated to want to do this that really can't imagine their career being anything else. And there will be institutions that are dedicated in the same way and they will meet and work productively together. That's been the history of this problem. And uh, yes, uh, right now we're in the middle of certain dynamics, but I think these dynamics will change over time. And I firmly believe that young people who are excited by these problems will find a very nice place for themselves uh, in our health research community.
5: So this is Erin and Kat, and this is Ask a Student, and today we've sat down with Swapna Myla Bethula, who's a student in the MD-PhD program in Dr.
6: Charles Tatter's lab. So welcome. Thank you so much. Um, So to start off, can you briefly tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, my name is Swapna and I'm uh, in the MD-PhD program. I started in the MD program alone and in my second year I decided I wanted to do more research and and create more opportunities for myself because the goal ultimately is to become a clinician scientist and the MD-PhD program is a really great avenue to do that. And so I applied and transferred to the MD-PhD program and I'm currently in the fifth year overall and in my beginning my third year of the graduate studies portion.
4: Very cool. It's kind of unusual, but that's very cool. Um, So can you just tell us why you decided to go with the MD-PhD, especially because you started off just uh, in the MD program? Sort of what were your motivations to become both a clinician and a
6: scientist? Right. So a couple of reasons. I think the first one being, being in the MD program, I had the opportunity to interact with a lot of really amazing people who are my peers who are in the MD-PhD program and hearing their stories and hearing their ambitions and their goals, I really identified with that and um, realized, even though I hadn't done that much research in the past, realized that this is something I really wanted to get involved in more. Learning more about the program, I decided to apply for it and to transfer after I did a little bit more research in the first couple of years of the MD program and that was really important to me because ultimately I do want to become a clinician scientist and this program really trains you and I really like the idea of being trained and having exposed all these wonderful networks and collaboration opportunities early on in my career both as a clinician and as a scientist, so that I can develop both perspectives at the same time and have each inform the other early on so that I don't develop with one and then trying to incorporate the other later on.
5: And you actually just touched upon what our next question was, which was, in your eyes, how do these parallel streams of training complement each other? And I think you briefly touched upon that, but
6: do you want to elaborate a little bit more? Sure. I really, really think they um, complement each other particularly well in this program because we get the opportunity to have both early on and I can't emphasize that enough particularly for myself um, having not had the opportunity to do too much research previously and knowing that um, I really do want to incorporate that into my career having the opportunity to do this do a full PhD within the smack in the middle of my MD helps me to understand what kind of problems clinicians might face in their um, work and how can scientists help address those challenges and vice-versa. So you talked just now
4: about generally about how being a clinician scientist works out, but could you give us a little bit more detail uh, in your case and with your research in particular, how you see your future and how you see the two intertwining?
6: Yeah, totally. Um, so I've still got time to change my mind, <laughs> I guess. But right now, I'm aiming to become a clinician scientist with a clinical focus on sport and exercise, medicine, and and a research interest currently on concussion, concussion policy in particular. But I look a lot at prevention, management, and recognition. And in general, I'd like to look at injury Um, relating to sport injury and and prevention and management um, in that sphere. And I'd like to continue with program evaluation, policy evaluation, that type of thing. So having the clinical experience of knowing what people are going through, what's common, and what the common challenges are in terms of You know going through recovery or even accessing resources for example for concussion it can be very difficult to identify and access resources sometimes they're just not there it really helps if I have that knowledge so I know what the gaps are clinically and in a patient's experience so that I can identify those and try and address them in some way with my research, um, which is what I'm doing currently, evaluating a policy that I had a hand in, actually consulting on to develop, and now it's implemented. So I'm really interested in seeing how that's playing out in in practice.
5: So it truly gave you insight in terms of and informed the research that you did.
6: Absolutely, yeah.
5: So Dr. Rosenbloom talks a little bit about gold label mentorship when describing his own career development. Did you have any mentors that influenced your decision to pursue this particular route?
6: Um, yes, yes, and always we're looking for more. I just came from an, um, the MD-PhD mentorship event that we had yesterday, um, so that's top of mind right now. And I did have mentors, but in making my decision to go this route, I think my mentors were often, in this decision, my peer mentors. So some of the people who were in the program in a a year ahead of me or in my own year and had chosen to take this route um, right at the the start and seeing what they were doing and seeing how it really complemented what their future goals were um, really helped me decide that this was the right thing for me. In my understanding, the MD-PhD program is fairly small and fairly intimate,
4: um, with not a lot of people choosing to pursue this route every year. So far, with your experience in the program, what do you think it takes for someone to succeed in pursuing this route, if they
6: were so inclined? I think it, it takes commitment. Um, because it is a long program, and it takes a genuine interest in both clinical practice and research. But there are our group is becoming more and more diverse, and it's really, really exciting to see that I just met a lot of the incoming students and see all the different backgrounds that they come from and all the different interests that they bring to the table and their passion. But I think what we have in common is that we really do want to have that interaction between clinical practice and research. but mm-hmm.
5: Well thank you Swapna for coming and talking to us today, so now back to Richie and DeBeer.
3: Do you have any particular advice for the budding clinician scientist who maybe has a, a foot in the door but isn't sure how to, as you mentioned, craft their identity? Well I think
2: uh, number one is that uh, preparation is key. <coughs> so preparation means deep education on the clinical side and the scientific side and also productivity. So. People need, science is a highly competitive business. It's a bit, to, it's quite different than medicine in this respect. So science is very competitive, and of course you're not just competing with your own kind, you're competing with diverse scientists in the playing field. You have to demonstrate the currency, and that currency is productivity through publication. Now we can talk all we want about other forms of currency, but in the end, it comes down to that form of currency. So that has to be demonstrated. I can do science, I can do it productively, and I can do interesting things. Then I think having done that, young new uh, clinician scientists have to position themselves carefully with respect to the kinds of questions they're interested in and return on investment issues. So that does not in any way prejudice with respect to it. it has to be applied research versus very basic research. There's a place for all of that. But I think it has to be explainable of how me doing what I'm doing is a pathway towards solving some important problems. So people look for that. And um, I think very important to remember, it's the question that's important. Technology changes so quickly. I always use the example. I used to sequence DNA in my lab every other day 20 years ago. Now? Never. You send it to a a core facility in our research institute, and for $35 we get 2,000 base pairs. I mean, you know, you you make mice, they're done in core facilities. Technology changes. And uh, it's not about the techniques per se. You learn these, you use them. It's the question. It's being able to focus on important questions and be productive around those. If one can do that, I'm extremely confident. I also think young people need to be geographically flexible. Is that I have a lot of people tell me, particularly in the Toronto context, because, you know, in Canada, we're a big country, but we don't have that many major metropolitan centers. And so it's common to hear that people say, you know, I really don't want to leave the city, and my concern is if you don't want to leave the city, it, there may not be the job that you're looking for at this point in time. And so being willing to move around a bit, even though I realize that can be a difficult thing in the age of two working partners, maybe with children, maybe not, that can that can really test one, uh, but uh, it may. It's important.
1: So, to someone entering the pediatric nephrology field right now, where would you point them to? What's the most difficult problems that we're currently facing?
2: Well, in pediatric nephrology, there's a lot of there's a lots of challenges, for sure. I mean, in my own field, it's really it's really harnessing genomics and developmental biology to get to a point where we could actually do something for patients okay so I think this will be about molecular diagnostics in the clinic it'll be about targeted therapy okay so that's a huge arena fantastic we've just had people be able to figure out how to make organoids now it's only 500 nephrons and it turns out we have hundreds of thousands but we're into a different world where we can model disease where we can even imagine that maybe we could regenerate some of this tissue so amazing horizons for the next generation but you know I was just on call this weekend and so you know another area which is very important is diseases of the glomerulus. This is the filter of the kidney and uh, where protein is lost from the glomerulus and we need lots of uh, uh, advance with respect to treatments that can reverse uh, these genetic and acquired diseases which cause a of very severe morbidities for the patient and, and sometimes lo- total loss of kidney function. So that's another very important area for progress. As does too, there are many other areas. Genetic diseases of the kidney tubule where it affects salt and water, acid base. We only have symptomatic treatments for these things at the moment as much as we're understanding the genetics in quite a sophisticated way. So if I was 25, And looking at nephrology, I would be like a kid in a candy shop, thinking, oh my, what a set of opportunities I have in front of me. Which one will
3: I choose? And my last question for you is, looking back, is there anything you
2: would have done differently? You know, I think, when I look back, I've been asked this question, you know who you are and, and what I was like at certain times. I think doing it differently would only have been being different. (laughs) And I wasn't different. I was who I was. I was as mature as I was when I was X age or not. And so I think, you know, given my, what I had to work with, I'm pretty happy with uh, what I decided to do. I think, I don't look back and think, well, if I had been like Joe, then I would have done it this. Well, it turns out I'm not Joe or Jill. I'm Norm. So I'm pretty satisfied with the choices that I made. I'm very happy in my career. I don't have any regrets with respect to to what I chose to do and the time I've spent.
3: I think that brings us to the end of our show. Is there any place where interested parties
2: can find you and your work? Well, we have a website that, you know, I have a laboratory at the Hospital for Sick Children. We have a laboratory website. You can certainly go on there. My email address at the Hospital for Sick Children is public. Uh, you can certainly be contacted in that way. Uh, it's always a pleasure to receive inquiries from uh, individuals who are interested in what we're doing.
3: Great. That was Dr. Norm Rosenblum, and we'll see you next time.
4: Raw Data is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawdataims.com. And also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.
2: I don't look back and think, well, if I had been like Joe, then I would have done it this Well, It turns out I'm not Joe. Or Jill. I'm Norm.